0: Well, you'll hear from me in two weeks. That's right, two weeks. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, that's it for the local edition news and information to keep you connected. This is uh, Radio Catskill. And uh, stay tuned. Trailer Talk's coming right up. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Marketplace on Main Street. Home to Woolworth Yarn, the Calicoon Pantry, Lit Home and Book, Early Bird Cookery, the Herbal Scoop, Channery Hill Farm, Vintage Moroc, and Grizzly Bagels. From Sullivan Renaissance, a community beautification initiative of the Gary Foundation. Dedicated to empowering volunteers to build beautiful, active communities in Sullivan County for over 20 years. On Facebook, Instagram, and at SullivanRenaissance.org.
1: WJFF Jeffersonville. You're listening to Radio Catskill.
2: Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets,
3: please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. So most of these images um, were shot locally in the river corridor here. Such a dab of extravagance.
2: I'm speaking with artist Sandy Long in Narrowsburg, New York, in the Sullivan County Catskills, part of the Delaware River Valley region of New York and Pennsylvania. Sandy served as the first artist-in-residence at Shenandoah National Park and completed an artist residency at the Delaware Highlands Conservancy's Lemonsbrook Farm. She also writes the River Talk column in The River Reporter... An independent and local newspaper serving the upper Delaware River Valley regions. In her artist statement, she says, Photography, poetry, and sound are portals through which I gain deeper understanding of a personal vision-influenced by interaction with the natural world. The installation is at the Union Digital Gallery at the Narrowsburg Union.
3: I have a lot more of these, and a lot of people will say, well, where do you find all these dead creatures? That, by the way, is fishing line and the impact it can have on birds. Um, It's really important for people to clean up those, that that filament line when they leave a spot because it really has a bad impact. Um, So these creatures are all I've encountered Watching, while I'm out shooting, um, being, watch, just for my personal interest in hiking and walking, but also uh, my River Talk column, where I write about thinking? these different species, yes, um, usually focusing dark, on dark, you know the beauty and the resource and all that they are. Um, but these the images to too are part of the, the conversation I'm and the reality of how of we coexist hair, with the life forms that we share our lives with here.
0: My name is Ginny Boyle, and I was very moved by the video presentation and the feelings that it evoked in myself just about um, the circle of life, about nature, about uh, facing death, and um, seeing the changes in nature and the continuity of life that surrounds us. I've been thinking about
2: what to expect as I drove here to Narrowsburg, to the Narrowsburg Union. And in thinking about impermanence, I have so many questions for Sandy, but in now being in this space and taking it in, I have to say I am moved. And that's something that other people have shared with me, that this exhibit has moved them. And it really has me. There's there's a build Sandy, with your words, with your poems, and with your images. Mm -hmm. And some of these images are jarring and also quite beautiful. The exhibit is filled with death, creatures that have died, but also juxtaposed with images of, I'm going to ask you who they are, but I make the assumption they're your parents who are older. Um, There's also mixed with the photographic images of these memorialized animals. I mean, that's how I'm seeing them, you know, using photography to remember them Mm -hmm. and the remains of them, but also to get at how we fit as human beings in this landscape and also how we deal with the kind of brutality that so frequently death embodies Mm -hmm. and also an inevitability. What is the genesis of this? What are you working with to create this installation?
3: Hi, I'm Sandy Long, um, poet, photographer, uh, and the person behind the impermanence installation at the Union Digital Gallery right now. This is um, a concept that has long intrigued me, um, probably from my early days as a child Mm -hmm. poet and throughout the rest of my life as photography came into it and became yet another tool to explore this the cycle of which we are all a part and of which we will all at some point wrestle with the final phases um, those aspects of impermanence that embody both the beauty of living and the desolation of relinquishing. I typically am photographing images that spark wonder, particularly in relation to the natural world. However, along the way, I've encountered so many images of uh, the desolation or the abyss, as poet Mary Oliver refers to it. Um, and so I've collected those too, and they have been just archiving <laughs> in my gallery of photos, and uh, I have decided that it's time to share them. and. Um, Along the way, I've also been trying to figure out how to incorporate sound and music, um, two of my other passions and interests. So this is coming together in this body of work in a way that's the closest I've ever been able to achieve. And part of achieving that has been um, being assisted by Pat Carullo, who curates the Union Digital Gallery. Um, And he has helped put together the... We're not sure even what to call this. It is not a film, it is not a video. It is still images given a sense of movement um, with techniques that Pat uses um, to create something that has the feel of a film and and yet isn't. Um, So it's a really interesting experience that allows you to immerse um, on various sensory levels. And at the gallery here, he will have The opportunity to work with other local artists in their various capacities to maybe collaborate or do shows in some way similar but explore the same terrain and it's right here it's a really exciting possibility how do your poems work
2: with your photographs how did you create what I just
3: experienced and what this installation is So it starts, well, I shouldn't say it starts because it is a back and forth between those two vehicles. Um, In this particular case, the images, to me, uh, provide a way for people to access poetry more successfully. It's sometimes challenging to just listen to poetry, and visual images are an easier vehicle to do that so bringing them together in a way that um, opens that portal is to me the most exciting part of this and also the very fitting music that uh, goes with this by Marlena Donato another local artist, um, composer, self-produced 21 albums, multi-instrumentalist the soundtrack for this is Eternus which means eternal so it all comes together in this way that um, is exciting and kind of new and unnamed and maybe won't be named, but that's okay too. Um, so we're, we're exploring that at this point.
2: Did you have the poems separate from the your photographs and then you began to mix them in with each other?
3: Yes, yeah, so they did exist separately. And what I have been doing is finding the connections between the words and the images. And then the process, um, involves stitching those together in a narrative. This film is 15 minutes long, and there is a story that arcs and and begins and ends. If you're able to watch the full 15 minutes from start to end, you can follow the storyline. But Pat and I work together to bring that um, into a sequence that loosely ties together the images and the words. It's not the literalness of a film. Uh, moment by moment, and that's part of what uh, we felt was a strength for it. There's a looseness that you can have your own experience when you're also listening to these specific words and these specific images.
2: Who uh, is influencing you both as a poet and a
3: photographer in this work? So in particular I mentioned the poet Mary Oliver whose ability to look at both sides and all aspects of something like impermanence really influences my writing and thinking. And the photographer, Dorothea Lang, whose uh, determination to look at things as they are, head-on and unflinchingly, helps to inform the visual aspect of this work.
2: There are moments where I grimaced, actually, when the images came up of skinned beavers, as you uh, shared with me. Uh, in the space. We're we're, we're just in the uh, doorway of the space right now and um, you know qu- smashed bodies of snakes and some of the, the images of the deceased wildlife are quite beautiful and others are very graphically disturbing and violent mm-hmm. and that built for me with the words that I was hearing you speak mm-hmm. and share with us and then also interestingly I was seeing images of nature but one consistently and one of the screens though had these human made objects like a bottle of alcohol in the woods uh, a child's kind of toy or like playground Mm -hmm. object and uh, a kind of worn Buddha sculpture and I found that quite fascinating because then towards the end on the main screen, I then saw these elders, right, a man and a woman, and you identified the woman as your mother. Mm-hmm. And then you began to talk about how you wanted to be remembered by her. So so I'm just wondering if you can talk about the layering and what is it that you are trying? Do you have something you're trying to communicate?
3: I'm trying to, I think, open up the, a safe place for the conversation around impermanence. Not to sugarcoat it on the one side, but also to enable people to take that head-on look and find the space that they feel comfortable with. Um, there a number of people have wept after seeing the show. Um, And then in some of these, you know, private viewings that we're doing, which are proving to be really um,
0: gratifying. My name is Rosie Starr. I live in Wayne County, Pennsylvania. The cycle of life presents itself throughout the seasons here in Northeast Pennsylvania. And over the years, I have witnessed a lot of roadkill carnage as I frequently walk along River Road. It never ceases to sadden me as i interpret what i see to be a failure of humans to share space on the road but finding a dead animal in the woods has a different effect on me when i recently experienced the presentation impermanence in the digital gallery at the union in narrowsburg i was surprised to find myself flooded with emotion sandy long has a remarkable ability to photographically zoom in and capture a moment in time that is layered with color and texture, adding her voice and poetic words together with the music of willow wind, I felt as though my soul was invaded by a sense of place. I didn't feel trapped, but deeply moved to be reminded of the fragile beauty that exists in every moment for all living beings. A wave of sadness came over me when I saw the images of Sandy's elderly parents captured in the time of COVID. I find it too difficult to express in words the personal loss of loved ones, family and friends. I have learned a valuable survival tool. Death is a part of life's cycle. Life does not end, but recycles to another form and continues on its path. People have found it to be almost
3: a a safe space that they can, in some cases, look at grief, um, unaddressed grief, which many people right now seem to have in relation to the pandemic um, and that sense of desolation that that has brought. And so maybe this experience enables them to feel that and and embrace it somewhat. Um, It's it's not easy, and, and this show isn't easy to uh, experience visually, but it it is hopefully creating a kind of space where people can have what experience is appropriate for them right now at at this time, yeah.
2: And as you just said, it's not easy. There are moments, of course, of what we often see as images of nature, which are those kind of wondrous Mm -hmm. images, which you've included moments of that here, but the kind of the bulk of the images are of death Mm -hmm. and are also of of wild things wild beings who have come to the end Mm -hmm. of their physical lives Mm -hmm. and then they're in another kind of transition that we also see as we see decay in some of your images as well what is it that you are exploring for yourself in this?
3: Well, the fullness of the cycle. What my photography is known for is more those, those images of wonder and um, nature, that kind of thing. But the reality is there's a full cycle to life, and we all are part of that cycle. Um, so I'm looking at the full cycle rather than um, ignoring the uncomfortable parts of it. Uh, We are all (laughs) aging. We are all facing things that are just part of an unavoidable part of our experience right now. And looking at it, I think, helps us to gain a sense of how to go forward and how to exist in the unknowing Um, And so some of these images actually start with a literal representation of, say, a drowned deer, and then you gradually move in and into the body in a way that the abstraction erases your understanding of knowing where you are or who you are in relation to the image. And that opens up a space that you can explore on whatever level is comfortable for you.
2: Your work often is in nature, about nature. Why? Why do you start there? What is it that you are exploring and communicating with your listeners and viewers? You know, you are the participants of your work.
3: So I myself have had to become more comfortable with uh, the, the, the things that I see in the natural world. They are what they are and experiencing them over a long period of time, you know, has taken me from horror. At, at what happens you with know, the collision on the road as our lives intersect with the wildlife here in the region, for example, um, to more of an understanding and acceptance that there are processes that are natural. The hawk does take the snake and there, no one questions that. It happens and we have to accept that and we have to find our way through that acceptance. The um, human aspect of this, the only humans included in the film are my parents, and they are facing the end cycle of their life, so we're exploring that together, I'm caregiving for them, and it brings me face to face with the reality of what that means. Um, So we're finding our way through it too, and there's much to be explored on the human impermanence aspect of this. Mo- much of the imagery here focuses on nature, as you've mentioned. Um, but it's, it's the same. You know, it's the cycle, and it's what, what happens. It's what happens.
2: And I mean, this really took me, your installation took me to this place of that grief of the unknowing. You use the word portal, um, remembrance. Uh, I mean, it took me to that place of this inevitable reality for physical beings. Mm-hmm. Also, it took me to wonder how you spend your time <laughs> and how you find these dead animals, right? I mean, I certainly do, too, when I walk in the woods. And sometimes I'll even kind of put moss around an animal or leaves or twigs, or somehow try to mark that moment, Mm -hmm. because it seems significant Mm -hmm. as I'm making my way through the woods. And you mentioned, you know, animals being hit and smashed on the roads. And that really is a major crisis really that I know many people are trying to contend with and find solutions for Mm -hmm. but I'm just wondering what else you want to share with us about where you're going with this and what you've discovered as you're doing these private viewings with people, kind of what's happening in this dialogue and as you're, you're kind of living now with the installation. Mm-hmm. So, um,
3: starting with the fact that this particular space is very, it's almost cave-like, it's sheltering, it's dark, but when you put these kinds of images and uh, the the music, Marlena's music is particularly um, healing I think somehow, it opens we refer to it as trance music because it sort of holds you in a space that enables something different to happen and people are responding to that um, in I think in ways that surprise even them um, having the experience here so I hadn't I wouldn't have predicted that I really wasn't sure what kind of reaction there would be Um, and it's, it's something that these different parts bring together in a way that um, just opens something for people in in their experience with it. I'm, I'm not sure how to really verbalize it more than that, but mm-hmm. um, it's a way of acknowledging and it's a way of maybe taking a step in a new direction, in in facing what it is that we all will face at some point, and that we do encounter in our daily lives, you know, along our roads and in our forests, and and in the human lives that we share. Because you're focusing on nature as a a, a
2: pathway into, as you just shared with us, this end of. Of cycle for your parents you're caretaking with them now you're in that with them now so I'm just I think because it's so anchored in nature this installation and you're taking us into you're describing it as a cave I experienced it as a kind of sanctuary Mm -hmm. but but this dark space um, with your voice reciting your poetry and with your photographs um, So I'm just wondering about your connection with nature and if there's something you've also learned by seeing all of these deaths around you as you're making your way in your neighborhood, in your community here in the Delaware River Valley of New York and Pennsylvania.
3: Well, what we have here is is extraordinary in terms of nature and the opportunity to um, enmesh ourselves in that experience.
0: I'm Zeke Boyle, and uh, I just experienced this very powerful piece by Sandy Wong that, um, to me, it just reinforces... How connected with nature we are, yet in this day and age, we seem to be estranged from it. We get caught up in our politics and the things going on around us, but out there, nature is happening, and we need to remember that we are part of it and connect with it. And that's what was yeah. so powerful for, instance, for me. Nature is
3: the ultimate healer and I am I'm out there a lot <laughs> between hiking and shooting. Um I, shooting with a camera. With a camera, yes. <laughs> I just
2: wanted to say, <laughs> I mean it is hunting season, but shooting with a camera.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Gathering those images. Yeah. Yeah, some of these images are the result of hunting. You know, this snare trapped coyote and the skinned beavers. So um but being out there uh, is is how I encounter it. For me, though, being part of that natural environment, ranging from the air mm-hmm. to the water to the sky to all of that, it it is a healing force that it's hard to even describe. But getting out and just taking a walk and opening your senses to that experience is important. And I think a lot of people here really are here because of that you know this is a place where you can experience that any day um, at any time and I encourage that (laughs) for me it's it's a huge healer yeah
2: yes for me too definitely so are your poems also available to read because as you mentioned this is another way for people to experience your poems and poetry. Um, with these recordings with photographs that are actually kind of have movement added to them and with music in this, this cave like sanctuary, <laughs> I'll call it that. But I mean, are they has
3: this changed? I guess your relationship with the the written word with text. So I always have loved the written word, you know, bookworm child, you know, still to this day, right? Um, However, and several people have asked, are the poems gonna be available in some way? Um, Maybe, I'm not even sure, um, but, you know, maybe a book, a collection or something, but with this particular approach, I was trying to find a way to, to bring accessibility to the words, you know, that isn't just, being read to or reading. There was a discussion at one point, should we put the poems on top of the picture, scroll the words? And it really felt like, no, This the images are the anchor and then the words hopefully mm-hmm. almost sink in in a subliminal way.
2: Right, and they become a kind of a score and really yeah. they can't, I mean, it would change them mm-hmm. completely if they were separated from this installation yeah I I mean they would become something different
3: or to distract people by having them read on a screen when the image itself is you know the thing that takes your focus and I think they just bring it together in a way that's a lot more accessible or um, it's just it it has a good feel to it and then hearing on top of that that the music um, it's all it comes together in a different way that I'm really happy about and excited about well, I want to congratulate you
2: on it. It, it is an experience.
3: The uh, final screens over here are other images um, related to the theme. And what do we want to say about them? They're, um, they're just another exploration of that cycle of life. I'm trying to take a sort of direct, kind of head-on look at of birth. what this is. And that's you know just challenging. But- the um, but also pain of glass. real. Uh, it was a, a principle in that Dorothea Lange, the iconic photojournalist, used in her work in instant, uh, to, attacked, to observe a thing as it is and, and acknowledge both its beauty and the desolation dawn, that flying. also is, is in that. I'm wondering if there's anything else you want to add? Just an encouragement to remain open and not fear looking at what is. Um, You know, I've wrestled with that myself for a long time and I have just found more and more that taking that look and that listen and putting yourself in the position to experience it is a really healing opportunity. And at this time, I think uh, a lot of us need that and it's a good thing to explore. Thank you. And thank you, Sabrina. I really appreciate your coming here today and experiencing this work with me. I'd like to invite anyone who might be interested um, for a private shared viewing of the work. Um, If our schedules can make it happen, we're happy to do it. I would love to hear your reaction to the work. You can also learn more about my work at sandylongphotos.com.
2: I've been speaking with artist Sandy Long about her installation, Impermanence, the Transitory Nature of Experience. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artel. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit TrailerTalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artell. Safe travels.
0: Radio Catskill's music sale is a Saturday after Thanksgiving. We have lots of records, CDs, and audio equipment, but what we really need now are just a few more valuable, rare, or collectible items for the sale. Are you a record collector willing to donate a few choice discs? Do you have any vintage working hi-fi stereo components to spare? Let us know. Email manager at wjffradio.org to donate your high-value items for the music sale. That's manager at wjffradio.org.
1: Estás escuchando Radio Caskill, Radio Pública para De Caskill y el noreste de Pennsylvania? We
2: we 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 Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I am really excited to have Iris Gillingham join me again. We invite you to this imagined kitchen table of Trailer Talk As we speak again about climate catastrophe, the climate crisis, climate justice, environmental justice, right? We can give this a lot of different names, but we're going to be really talking about what is happening now. It is November 2021, and uh, we're going to be talking about the United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26 this year. Iris Gillingham is a youth climate activist, and she traveled from the U.S. Uh, she is from the Sullivan County Catskills in upstate New York to COP26. And I welcome her perspective, her feedback about this. So just to share with listeners some of the headlines in, in just really the last 24 hours. From The Guardian. A Death Sentence, Indigenous Climate Activists Denounce, COP26 Deal. From the Wall Street Journal, the COP26 Summit and the Global Age of Shams. From the Hill, COP26's Unintended Consequences, Pushing Our Allies Into China's Hands. So these are just three headlines and the the most recent is from 56 minutes ago. So there's a huge criticism about what just happened at COP26. Welcome, Iris.
1: Thank you so much for having me again. Um, I'm currently calling in from Isle of Skye, Scotland, where my friend and I took a little trip out to the islands right after COP26 to have a little breather after the intense two weeks that we've been through. So could you share with us what these
2: two weeks have been like? Your work has been covered by the Boston Globe as a youth climate activist who went from the U.S. there to use your expertise as an organizer and as a climate leader, one that you have been doing since you were a little girl, you are now college age and you're continuing with your vision of what you want to see happen and what you're demanding happen. So let's hear from you, Iris, what this experience has been like and what do you want to see happen and what did not happen at COP26?
1: Yeah, COP26 was a pretty eventful um, experience. I went because I had the incredible opportunity to receive a badge into the blue zone where the negotiations were taking place and where world leaders were coming together. Um, And I think that I went into COP26 seeing it as a great learning experience, um, an opportunity for me to understand what conversations are happening at a global level between leaders so that In the Catskills and in New York State, we can be taking action that we can be supporting climate movements and resilience and community adaptation um, in our own localized uh, communities and organizations. And what I found was that COP26 was so much of a uh, disjointed event, there were so many different narratives going on. Um, You had Inside negotiations where there were closed meetings happening, there was limited access and, uh, you know, plat- the online platform where leaders were supposed to be um, uh, able to be seen making decisions, having conversations, the online platform wasn't working because of COVID, they were limiting people in rooms, So, you know, keeping people out of these really important conversations where we should be hearing what decisions leaders are making. And then there was also just this, um, entire business opportunity within the blue zone where businesses and companies were coming together, figuring out like, how can we make money off of climate change and selling their great ideas for offsetting and, you know, green hydrogen and all of these different ideas that are not actually cutting any kind of emissions. Um, and then out in the streets, it was really interesting because we had so many, so much representation from Indigenous communities from Central and South America. We had incredible leaders from all around the world who came together. Um, but there was a lot of effort to just get their voices heard at the table and and feel like, They were making a difference because I think this whole COP process is very complicated and it's made to be that way purposefully. Um, And it's a really interesting experience.
2: Thank you, Iris, for sharing that. I want to quote something that you shared on social media. You say COP26 has been flashing all these false solutions, and it has been an emotionally draining environment for many frontline folks. So it was nice to gather and plan for action. So let's talk about that. How has COP26 fallen short? And for those who are most adversely impacted by climate catastrophe, by these frontline people.
1: Yeah, um, one of the really draining aspects of COP26, for me personally, was seeing all of this talk about um, offsetting. And yeah, so
2: can you about, share with us what you mean about that, like offsetting carbon yes. credits?
1: Yes, so basically, there's a lot of efforts that the UK government was pushing during this COP. I mean, the sub, there were signs all around the subway saying, go net zero. And a lot of people at the beginning of COP were like, what is net zero, (laughs) you know? But many indigenous communities and frontline, very impacted communities have already been fighting this idea that we can buy and sell carbon, that we can buy and sell our water, that we can buy and sell our air, right? And that's a philosophy that in our society, we often put dollar signs on things. But in this instance, when we put a dollar sign on how much a forest is worth, what happens is you have companies come in and say, well, you know what, we won't cut down that forest so we can still fly our airplanes. And, you know, we, we're we going to plant 20 trees so that we can continue to emit in this Black community in Detroit. And that's really not a sustainable way of dealing, not even sustainable. It's not a just way of dealing it's with not the climate a just, crisis.
2: Right. It's, it's a cruel way. And it's a, it's a dangerous way. And, way for us to proceed. And the
1: danger, the real danger here is that all of this is not asking anyone, any of the corporations and fossil fuel industry to cut their emissions. It's just allowing them to keep emitting and buying out Natural places as a way for them to say, Oh, but we're protecting nature or, Oh, we're, we're, you know, like we're, we're at, um, a carbon neutral zone, you know, like we're, we're okay. Um, cause we're trying to work with, uh, climate solutions. And these are false solutions that they're marketing and saying are really great. My, one of my, somebody I really look up to, Doreen Sabinski. Always says, you know, you can say false solutions, but actually it's just dangerous distractions because this whole idea that um, we are going to risk the lives of people around the globe that are experiencing the impacts of climate change so that the fossil fuel industry can keep making money and can just buy whatever they want. It like is so flawed. And these world leaders are allowing this to happen. They're literally writing it into the agreements that they're coming up with at COP. For example, when um, the language was coming out, mm-hmm. everyone was really excited because there was language around phasing out coal. But at the very last minute, the last night of the negotiations, they changed it to phase down coal. And Yes, possible. so no. Iris, no. wait, I want to <laughs>
2: add that, that across social media platforms, this has been posted and there was an ad taken out. So I want to share this with our listeners who have joined us. So U.S. climate activists are running this ad in Scotland's largest newspaper. This is what the ad says, President Biden and U.S. delegates to COP26. Would climate leaders build 399 new coal plants in the U.S.? The answer is no. Yet right now, 23 liquefied natural gas export terminals and pipelines are sitting on your desks. These projects will unleash greenhouse gas emissions equivalent to doubling, doubling all existing U.S. coal-fired power plants. We are in a climate emergency please act now and uh, the hashtags are keep it in the ground build back fossil free so i'm wondering you you are a us climate activist and you are part of the youth activists who are pressing all of us hard as you should be so what is your response you were just about to share the the contradictions that are written in now to these agreements
1: Yeah, the crazy piece of COP was seeing how blatant it was that leaders were talking and saying what they thought people wanted to hear and then turning around and doing what the fossil fuel industry wanted. So, for example, Biden came to COP touting, you know, climate change and action and saying all these great things about what the U.S. is doing or going to do. And then he, days after <laughs> COP26, is holding an offshore drilling auction to hmm. invest in more fossil fuel infrastructure. And to me, that is a representation not of people following their word, but also people literally not caring what comes out of their mouth if they feel like they're pleasing the public, right? I think it's really difficult as a young person to go to these conferences and see leaders saying climate justice, but knowing that their understanding of climate justice is so incredibly different than mine, because they're just using words. And when I say climate justice, I'm thinking of people. And that is the difference between many of the organizers and activists at COP and the leaders who speak there.
2: What you're addressing is climate capitalism. So it's not actually about mitigating the climate crisis. It's not actually about any kind of justice for people, the environment, the world that we live in, but it is about profit. And it is about finding a way, as you so beautifully put, instead of using false solutions, you said someone who you very much admire. What is their name again? Doreen Stabinsky, my professors. Says instead of false solutions, we should be thinking of this as dangerous distractions. So you're making really important points for us, Iris. Can you describe? So you were at COP26, you were both inside the blue zone. You were also on the streets as a youth activist. And I'm just wondering if you can Um, talk about what the streets were looking like. What were those actions you participated in the Global Day of Climate Action, for instance? So what are the demands that are being made?
1: Yeah, um, basically, there were actions every single day. Different organizations and groups were taking to the streets, um, holding rallies, press conferences, calling attention to different issues like, you know, shutting down fossil fuel infrastructure, um, paying attention to missing and murdered indigenous women, looking at net zero as a false solution. These actions were taking place every day. And um, I wasn't able to be at all of them, but the ones that I did go to, um, that some of the It Takes Roots delegation and indigenous environmental network and groups that i worked with previously were putting together, um, it was very powerful and very beautiful to see the amount of love and courage that community members had to show up at COP this year. You know, we were all um, taking a lot of precautions because of COVID um, to be there as well, and I think everyone was even more urgently aware of what needs to happen because we're seeing wildfires. We're Seeing storms, we're seeing so much climate capitalism happening that people in the streets were really, really adamant about what needed to come out of this COP. And those needs were honestly not met. Um, but during the Global Day of Action, we saw a hundred thousand people take to the streets. And that goes to show that, you know, whether if even if leaders are dragging their feet and sitting in rooms trying to figure out which words to replace and make more loopholes for the fossil fuel industry that we as people are really going to be taking action in our communities. And I did have the opportunity to um, speak in a closed meeting, um, giving feedback and advice to the COP presidency through uh, ministers that he had assigned talking about loss and damage and These are like very private closed meetings. And so I was super privileged to be in there and be sharing my voice in a room, you know, like a handful of other organizations and activists. What did you say? So it was around loss and damage and finance. And one of the things that I spoke about was how important it is that countries that have the financial ability, support countries, especially island nations in other places that are feeling the effects of climate change already. Um, and with what we're dealing with in the near future, it's very clear that the U S plays a super important role because we have a lot of resources. We have a lot of technology and we need to be sharing that, you know, we, we even had the vaccine and some leaders from different countries who did, could not have access to the vaccine couldn't come. And I cannot believe that countries like the US and other countries would not share that so that everyone could be at the table to discuss the like, future of the world. And that's about profit again. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I think that was just like a big takeaway for me from COP yeah. was how much of this whole process of protecting our future and the future of young people and the planet really comes down to profit for many folks. And um, it's unfortunate, but it's not something that we have to lose hope over because there's people in the streets and people taking action.
2: Yes, there is that hope. And as you said, you and 100,000 people were in Glasgow at COP26 taking to the streets with their demands and also with their love. And I think that's a really important point you made. So I wanna ask you, where is that hope coming from? You have a community, there's a network, there are coalitions of climate activists. So what are some of those highlights of what you, you gained from this experience as, as a youth climate activist? So that's one question. I wanna kind of cobble them together a little bit so you can jump off with them. The other is, how did your growing up in the Sullivan County Catskills of upstate New York, as a little girl, really your whole growing up, seeing your family and your neighbors, your community members, fighting, fracking, and then achieving a fracking ban in New York state. And how does the hope and the network of activists connect to who you are and how you grew up and that, site, that location that is so meaningful for you, tie into transformational plans? Because Iris, (laughs) we're looking to young people, we're looking to activists who are putting their bodies on the line and who are strategizing.
1: I think it's really... Important to recognize that we all have a role to play. And even if many people were not able to go to COP and definitely didn't want to, that there's a place in, of action for each of us in our communities. And I think that that's partially where hope comes from is that I think my hope is definitely not in these meetings. I did not go to COP thinking it was going to change the world. I went to COP. And I was very excited to connect with and meet with activists from all around the globe who are dealing with these issues and who are fighting it. And we were able to have conversations and strategize and share stories. And, you know, I was able to learn from some incredible movement leaders who've been doing this since they were my age and are still showing up at COP. Now, 26 years later, you know, it's kind of amazing to see the dedication and work that people are putting into justice around the world. Um, and I and think that I have seen in my own community ways that people show up for themselves. We've experienced a lot of floods since I was a kid. And you know when those floods happened, people stepped up, people took care of each other. Um, and that's what we have to do when it comes to climate change. We have to look after our communities, our land. I grew up on Wild Oots Farm where we live off the grid and grow and raise all of our own food and live as sustainably as we can. Um, and I'm very much in love with that place. And I will do, I think, whatever it takes to help protect that watershed, um, which included fighting fracking for much of my life. you know. But in terms of hope, when I was eight years old, most people didn't even know what fracking was. It was called hydraulic fracturing and it was spelled differently. And you mentioned it to <laughs> yes. someone and they, they'd be like, what is that? And what is shale? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right. <laughs> and now people know what fracking is and now people are becoming more aware with the dangers that it causes communities. And we in New York state, we got a ban and we're still continuing to fight fossil fuel infrastructure in the state, but we got a ban that people, some of the best lawyers in the state said we could never get, you know? So that is hope to me that represents that people came together from across the state, from rural communities, from New York city, from farming to, you know, uh, lawyers, to doctors,
2: And I want to add to that because that's where I live. I live in upstate New York and I was part of part of this. And what was extraordinary to me was to also see how interconnectedness is vital to these fights. Right. Because not only was it about our neighbors, our neighborhood, our community and then the state, but it was about other states, other countries other activists, other people who had knowledge and the creativity and the determination that it takes to do these things. So I'm wondering, Iris, for you, when you were meeting so many people during COP26 and you're sharing your inside perspective with us, which I so appreciate, what were some of the things that you discovered in having tea with people and marching with people <laughs> and interviewing people that you thought, oh, my goodness, this is something I need to learn more about, or I'm going to try, or this is something significant.
1: Well, for me, one of the big things was the false solutions. I had gone in with a very strong stance on justice. Um, and I knew many of the fossil solutions were terrible, right? Uh, growing up on a farm, they are always trying to get farmers to offset so that fossil fuel industries can keep polluting. Um, but I had the opportunity to connect with people and just really understand how much leaders were pushing for these false solutions and how important it is for me to further understand it. So there's actually, I don't know if listeners are interested in learning more about false solutions. There's a little booklet that is free downloadable PDF called Hoodwinked in the Hothouse. And the third edition just came out. And you can find it at climatefalse And it's free. And it's, you know, a little booklet. It has pretty images in it. It was put together by a bunch of incredible organizations from around the country. Um, and it just goes through like some of the flaws with these solutions that are being proposed and how can we talk about them in a knowledgeable way and understanding, um, when we come up against these people who are like, well, this is going to fix everything. <laughs> right.
2: Well, thank you for sharing that resource. So it's called Hoodwinked in the Hothouse. And people who are interested can find it online at climatefallsolutions.org. And I recommend uh, people uh, check that out. I certainly am uh, going to check out the information that's there because we can't separate the financial uh aspects of this challenge when we're we're dealing with climate justice with any climate solutions. We we have to look at uh where the money is coming from, where it's going, what those incentives are, uh certainly. Um, and I'm wondering, Iris, we just have a couple of more minutes, if there's anything else you want to share with us. You spent two weeks at COP26, uh, you're still in Scotland. And you are sharing this inside perspective for us. So, what's next for you? Where are you going to take what what you just experienced?
1: Yeah. Um, after being at COP and really seeing how little representation there was around uh, agriculture conversations, I'm really interested in taking what I learned there. Back to the Catskills and to local conversations that we have about sustainable food systems and agriculture. Um, I've been able to connect with some farmers here in Scotland and, and not surprisingly many of them are dealing with some of the same issues or similar issues to farmers in the Catskills. And I think that it's super important for me because I've grown up on a farm to, uh, I'm, I care about our food ways and food systems. So I'm going to take this knowledge back with me.
2: Thank you so much Iris for joining us all the way from Scotland. Our kitchen table has expanded to another continent and I wish you safe and and joyous travels um, while you continue to educate yourself and, and also to share your own knowledge with others on this journey of yours, I've been speaking with Iris Gillingham, who is a youth climate activist who just participated over the last two weeks in the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference COP26. Thank you, Iris. I know you're about to go have dinner, right? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate it. From the kitchen table out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artel. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels.
0: Hello, it's Michelle Martin from NPR. Thank you to everyone who donated to this station in the last drive. Your gift helps us bring you the news and information you rely on and the shows that you love. We couldn't do any of it without your support. So thank you so much.
1: Keeping you connected, your NPR station for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. We are Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville. Radio Catskill. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. On air, online, on your smartphone, and on your smart speaker.
3: Support comes from the law office of john ferrara in monticello providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense john.ferrara557 at gmail.com
0: support comes from the vintage house on main street jeffersonville featuring eclectic furnishings clothing antiques records and books in a charming 19th century house vintage house jville.com and on instagram